Hello, I'm Sarah Crompton and I'm the critic. Hello, I'm Nancy Carroll and I'm the actress. And this is our first go at a podcast together. Um, So we thought we'd start off by telling you how we came to know each other. Um, I met Nancy a few years ago through another mutual friend and um, I had sought her out because (laughs) I had loved her on stage so much um, in um, Terence Rattigan's After the Dance. Oh, that's lovely. And I thought she was so utterly wonderful. I thought, I like that woman. I wonder what she's like. And I knew that this mutual friend knew her. So I said, what's she like? And she said, oh, you'd get on very well. Mm. And then it turned out we lived very near each other in South London. Yeah, and just so, around the corner. Just around the corner <laughs> at that point. And so I sought her out and came to see her. And we've got on ever since. And we thought we'd have a go at talking um, together about theatre, which is our... Uh, mutual passion but obviously we view it from very different angles so let's start off Nancy tell me how you got to being an actress I think I I sort of came at it sideways really Um, I thought initially that I wanted to be a painter and I went to art school in fact I studied fine art for about five years um, via uh, an extraordinary art school in Italy, which I was very, very lucky to go to for a year. And then I got a place at Leeds um, where I did fine art, a BA in fine art for four years. Um, but what was interesting is that I think really performing and making art must use, I don't know the science of it, but must use a very similar part of the brain. Um, but that ultimately making art for the most part, is a solitary activity. And I was always craving company and collaboration. And and even when we made art, you know, we would wander between each other's studios and stuff because there's a fantastic street in Leeds where they've knocked through all these Victorian houses. So you get this amazing space for four years, which is an unbelievable luxury, really. But it was always that which interested me. So I got to the end of my fine art degree and I thought... I, I think it's a now or never situation. So I applied for a postgrad and I got a place at um, Lambda, which is a London Academy of Music and Dramatic Arts. And I, so I was there for a year, which again, sheer luck, I managed to pay for with a with a commercial um, for tampons. So uh, thank you, sanitary wear. Um, I, um, yeah, and I, and I left Lambda after a year and managed to get, representation with United Agents that I'm still with, amazingly, which is just glorious, Mm. Um, and went, I did a few things and went to the RSC, which I feel was my proper training, really, because I was players cast in that first season. And at that time, you sort of did a bit of circuit training. So when you weren't rehearsing, you were taken off a voice or Alexander or just about text work and and so anything that I'd missed out on by doing that sort of crazy one-year postgrad, I felt that I was given the opportunity. And not just that, just watching, re- you know, real-class acts do their thing. Which which season were you there with? Who were you watching? My, so my first season was Winter 99. So I did A Winter's Tale with the late, great Tony Cher. 
and Estelle Kohler. And I did the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, which was fantastic because, you know, again, that was a huge training ground because it was children's theatre. And Adrian Noble, who was the artistic director at the time, said, you know, to start with a children's audience is is such a fantastic thing because children are truth tellers. Yeah. They don't lie. And you have to get them in the first five minutes. And they smell out anything that's patronising or, you know, unclear in, in its intention. And so you have to believe it. And so by the end of that show, we really believed we were Narnians. And I think, and they loved it. They're the sharpest critics, children. I'm, I'm always fascinated when you, you know, you sometimes end up at a matinee with a lot of children. And you yeah. could just tell that they are so stern in their criticism. It's and brilliant. if a joke doesn't land with kids, it really doesn't land. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. So it's kind of horrible kind of silence that falls in an auditorium. Absolutely. And, and that's been true throughout my entire sort of working career on stage is when you have a younger audience, you have to be that bit sharper and that bit clearer and that bit truer. And and I, you know, and if you get them, there's nothing better, actually. If you lose them, there's nothing worse, but, you know. I think it's fascinating that it was the sense of community that drew you to acting. Because I think there was a point where I might have tried acting. Oh, really? And when I was at university and everybody was doing it. And it was exactly that sense that it was so nice being in a gang and putting on a show right here. Yeah. And I was really, really drawn to that. But I also always felt solitary as well. I, I, I've, I've always, um, I think possibly how, what you end up doing is so much to do with your own personality. Yeah. So if I look at my own background now from the great height of where I am, I think that I learned about theatre through reading about it. Okay, interesting. So that I was growing up in Manchester and um, Oxford uh, where my family moved. And my dad in particular believed plays should be read, not acted. He really, really, really disliked um, seeing things put on a stage. And he loved them on a page. Oh, and he, wow. You know, he, he really liked reading plays, but he didn't like theatre at all. And he didn't like ballet, which is my other great passion. And I had a kind of revelatory moment at the RSC as well, oh, because wow. we went when we were really quite young and, and not kind of terribly appropriately Somebody took us to see Cymbeline. Right. Which, as we know, is a really, really difficult play and yeah. not often performed. And it was one of my father's favourite plays because he loved the poetry on the page so much. So he basically sort of sat along the row with his eyes closed, as far as I could see, and just kind of listened to it. But I was overwhelmed by how it looked. I remember it being, I mean, it possibly wasn't because you misremember things, but I remember it being very golden and very shiny. Yeah. And it had um, Sebastian Shaw, I think. Right. A Cymbeline who had this amazing sort of fruity voice. And crucially, it had Susan Fleetwood as Imogen. And... She was so real on a stage. I, I really remember how I felt that this person who didn't seem so very different from me was standing there and speaking Shakespeare. Yeah. Was kind of a real moment of thinking, gosh, this is amazing. Yeah. And it was also amazing because I remember going home and really arguing with my father who had not liked the production at all because he felt it messed up Shakespeare at some kind of profound level and felt it missed up, messed up how he himself um, imagined the speeches, whereas I liked that. And I was already at that point reading a lot about ballet 
and um, reading critics all the time to learn about performances I couldn't see. So I obsessively read people like Clement Crisp and John Percival to learn about dance. And then I added from that RSC moment onwards, I'd, I'd gone to the theatre before, I'd, I'd seen shows, I'd seen pantomimes and kids shows. But it was that moment that I really started to read about it. And so it, it was almost like I'd, I'd already placed myself in the stalls, actually, somehow. Yeah. But really quite young. You know, I would have been about, I think I was about 14 when I saw Cymbeline. Right. And, um, yeah, it's an, and it's an odd thing. And I asked myself if I'd, if I'd acted more at university, whether I would have would have liked that other side of it. Because yeah. I, but I, I like being on a stage. I like holding forth. Yeah. But I, I think the thing that fascinates me about actors is that kind of, I wasn't ever sure I could make that imaginative leap into another person's character, really. And I could always see it from outside and sort of analyse it from outside. But I wasn't absolutely convinced that I was going to be the person who could take you inside that other character's head. I mean, did you all, I, I think that's one of your great, qualities as a, a, an actor that you're you're good at getting inside someone did you always feel that you that was something you could do or did it come gradually thank you um gosh I don't know really I suppose I'm a great believer in in those moments when you don't know what you're doing and you feel completely lost and so the intellectually you know, your synapses have failed you in some way. And that, that it's at that point that something interesting happens that's slightly beyond your control. And without sounding too wanky, I always feel like at that point, you're part of a a, a greater history of, of people who have tackled language and who have tackled filling, you know, an auditorium or have tackled that story in some way, and that I'm just passing through, and that I somehow feel, and I, I don't mean this in any way that, you know, I have some kind of, you know, special uh, agility available to me, because I've spoken to other actors who feel the same, that, that somehow when you're most tired and you're most at a loss, something else kicks in, and I don't know what that is. And I, I can remember reading about Olivier getting very, very upset about something that when someone said, that's the best you've ever done it. And he said, oh, yes, I know, but I don't know why. <laughs> you know, and it's that. It's that thing that goes beyond the intellect where you enter into this great history of storytelling and that something else happens. And whether it's, you know, the vowels that affect your emotional um, depths or, 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 or that you are just... You, you know, I've heard people talk about accessing the universe. I work with a really interesting director, Shaker Kapoor, who um, talks about wanting chaos around him because chaos forces you to connect with the universe. You're no longer inside your head. Um, and that, for me, is a constant fascination. And I think, I suppose my parents would say that, you know, in those moments that I was lost as a child, that that's possibly where I I went and I but a lot of actors feel like that that the, the struggle to tell the story the struggle to um invest in character to 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 put that character across to an audience is often in opposition to an intellectual um analysis 
and it's something purely emotional and it's something about empathy and it's about losing yourself in something. And I think also in live theatre, it's allowing yourself to have enough silence in you that you can connect with what the audience are giving you. And that, and that for me is always the drug that pulls you back is in those moments where you, you, you consciously feel that you are part of a whole, you know, either within the space between you and your fellow performers, between you and what you think the experience of every other performance up until that live performance has given you, but also in the, the new blank canvas of that audience that night and how they're listening. I think I do think that's part of the fascination. It's the fascination of watching it because sometimes you see those moments where you really, really do see that um, somebody has absolutely lost themselves. I mean, I, 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 and yet still is conscious of the character. I mean, so it is a kind of uh, it's an almost magical thing where you see the actor and the character, and somehow they. They are as one, I suppose. And I interviewed um, Eddie Redmayne recently. And oh, yes. he, he, he said exactly that. That what, what I said, what keeps you going? What, you know, what brings you back to the stage? Because he'd been off stage for so long. And he, and he described exactly that sort of moment of, of looking for that, that kind of instant where character and you are kind of fused and one and um, you know you've got it. Um, and I suppose the fascinating thing is that you you do witness it. You witness it quite rarely. Yeah. I mean, that's so, but what keeps you going to the theatre, what keeps you um, looking for things is when you see that as an audience. I mean, other things keep you going as well, you know, like the writing and, and the history and all the rest of it. Yeah. But actually, really, it is those 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 instances where something it's like alchemy isn't it just yes, suddenly yes. you see somebody changing in front of your eyes and yes you feel you've understood something in a way that you um you haven't before I mean I remember um going to see uh Andrew Scott in Hamlet oh yeah and I had been really really ill and in fact I still at that point was really ill and I was still kind of um I had all the kind of bandages of hospital around me. You know, I was in a really bad way. And I, I thought, well, I love Hamlet. I'll give it a go and see what happens. And that night he did that for me. And three hours of feeling quite rubbish went in a flash. And suddenly I saw things about that play. And I thought it was particularly good production by Robert Icke. But I suddenly saw things that I'd never seen before. And it felt as if, you know, everything was coming together from the 16th century down to you know, me off my hospital bed in the Almeida and just sitting there. And you thought, I thought, this is why I do it. This is why I go out, you know, night yes. after night in the hope of these moments. And it is, it's transforming, really, I think. Well, there's a great catharsis, you know, in terms of, you know, your release from being inside your body and inside your head and connecting with the world and realising that every every worry and anxiety that we have is, you know, that it, the tendency is to feel so isolated and yet you you enter that communal space and when a play speaks to you in that way or somebody's words connect so clearly with what it is that you haven't been able to articulate articulate in your own head there's this it's a magical moment you think yes that's how, yes and you and and it's like you're sort of 
the, the sort of the all your drawbridges drop at once, and there's this great epiphany you know that you belong to something so much larger and that every human emotion is something that you know that that, that we're all capable of feeling even you know in our darkest moments you know or in our most joyous moments and 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 they stay with you for life you know and and so often I mean it's brilliant when people come to talk to you about something that they've seen you do because you think that's amazing that you're able to Almost, almost put on to what I was doing, you know. You, you, you were embellishing what I was doing. I, I didn't make you feel that. You made you feel that, because of what you had brought that night, and that the blank canvas that we were both given. I put something onto it, and you put something onto it, and then together it became a, an experience that was a healing process to you. I mean, I remember years ago going um, to uh, an ancient Greek theatre just outside Athens, and they had a sort of medical bay that was part of their hospital right alongside and the writing I can't remember the details of it but it was just that theatre was healing and so it's absolutely right that the two places that people could go to sat alongside each other and it Go on, you go. No, no, and I think, well, I think that's, in a sense, that's taken us to why, very much why we thought we would do this podcast. I mean, it's partly, I think, that, um, you know, there are a lot of podcasts at the moment and a lot of people are doing them, um, but there aren't that many about um, the arts and both of us feel quite passionately about the arts in general, I mean, yeah. you know, and have made our lives in them. But also that sense that there's, um, there's, if 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 two of people or you know if people love something and are interested by how in how it works and how it performs those transformative functions then that's quite an interesting thing to talk about and to yeah. talk about it from slightly different angles so when we walk around the park together talking yeah. about theater we come at it from slightly different angles and i'm always struck that you will say something about a performance or about a play or or, or, or about a director that I haven't noticed, but um, that I, but that I too will see things that maybe you won't see, and Absolutely. also will analyse it in a different way. Yeah, so my yeah. my sense as a critic is that you are sitting there as part of an audience and trying to be like be a well a really well informed audience member, and but making um, if you like. A, a, a written contribution from the stores of saying, you know, I'm here, I'm describing something that is um, plays a historic event. It goes down in a in a list of productions and so on. So I'm here to give you an eyewitness account of it, like a, a sports report or a report from the front line. That's the first thing a critic's doing. But also trying to judge the experience, you know, as an audience member who is quite well informed on what... Um, you know, what we are expecting to see. So maybe bring slightly more experience towards, um, maybe bring slightly more experience towards judging something, but also brings a sense of information and knowledge that you, you, you know, you have prepared in a sense. And I think, again, that sense of the function of the critic for me is to do with how I grew up with it. So I grew up reading those sort of famous critics of the past, you know, from Shaw and um, on to people like Tynan and Hobson, who really were influential and had loads of space, which, you know, current critics don't have at all, to discuss what was going on. Yeah. Um, so I think that is that idea that, you know, this is something that we think is kind of healing and 
good, essentially, but we might be able to talk about it in ways that are interesting. And I wondered what you as an actress think of critics. I mean, do you do you read them? I try not to read them while I'm still doing the production. Um, but that's based on my experience of having read them during a production. And, the, you know... When did you read them? When... when? Uh, I think quite early on, I think I did a production of Hamlet at the Bristol Old Vic many, many, many moons ago uh, in which I had to take my clothes off because Gemma Bodney, who was directing it, had this great instinct that Ophelia's madness was a literal release. Right. And so her costume up until the mad scene, I think it if it's still called the mad scene, um, uh, was fairly confining and heavily corseted. And so that with um, Laertes going away and the death of her father and her rejection by Hamlet, there was a sort of relinquishing of those shackles, which then meant that her mind relinquished. Um, And so it was quite a vulnerable show for me, Um, not only because it was a GCSE text as well. So we had a lot of young audiences guffawing at my naked body. Um, And so I was sort of desperate for someone to tell me that I had gone through all of that for the right reasons. But I didn't get it from the reviews. Uh, You know, it it wasn't a remarkable moment for any reviewer. Um, (laughs) And I had a similar experience in King Lear that I did at the Almeida, um, where my performance again was sort of slightly taken apart and in those in that moment directly following the reading of the reviews I immediately which I don't know whether is a very human instinct thought well how can I improve what I'm doing in order to then satisfy the needs of that reviewer representing the audience who wasn't entirely happy with what I was doing but it was fascinating because in that moment which was the following performance well, probably directly after press night, I found myself almost in slow motion dislocating myself from the rest of the company and from the experience of creating that play with that company in order to satisfy my own need for approval. And it was almost happening in front of me. And so I I thought in that moment, I thought I can never do this again because my loyalty can only be to the company and to what we created, and I have to be honest to that. And and if people don't like it, it's it's beyond my control and beyond anything I can do independently. All I can do is be true to what we have created and what the director wanted to put onto that stage. And so, quite simply, reading the reviews interrupts that process. And it's true of a positive review. I remember when the the uh, Rattigan play that we talked about earlier, that after the dance, received very, very positive reviews. Um, and again, I tried to avoid them. And people would be coming up and saying, "Have you read it? Have you read it? It's exciting." And I'm just like, "La la 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 la," like because I I had to again be true to what Thea Sharrock and the company. And I had created in that room and be loyal to Rattigan's story um, in order to to somehow emulate 
the same performance that had been reviewed in the first place. So it's quite a it's quite a complex journey, but the need for approval is so so strong and you're so exposed as an actor on stage. It's it is always a crossroads moment where the minute you 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 draw the curtains on what you've been doing for the last few weeks and say please like me please like me I hope you like it you know do you get it do you understand this interpretation do you understand why we've done this I hope you feel uh, as strongly about it as we feel making it um yeah. that's really interesting I should I should say that one of one of our plans with this podcast is to talk about nudity on stage later on and the role of of women actors and how um how they are treated and what they're um, what that kind of exposure does to one. Um, so that's something we're coming on to. But I think that's so interesting about how the need for approval yeah, drives what your, um, your reaction. And I, it would totally, I suppose, you know, going back to what I said at the start, one reason that I perhaps have always preferred to be the, the giver or, 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 or withholder of approval or disapproval is because, you know, I do think that is the thing. I, one of the reasons I like actors a lot is that um, I think it is kind of an exposing thing and people can say, oh, well, it, you know, it's frivolous and it doesn't mean anything. But if yeah. you believe in theatre, you do need, you know, my dad was wrong. You do, if you believe in theatre, you can't just read it. You do need actors to do it. And then it is so shocking for them to have to go out and face the judgment, not only of the audience, but of the critics. And it was, I've, I've been reading time and I've been doing a bit of... Um, lecturing on theatre criticism and uh, it, it's interesting to analyse it in a way that probably you don't do if you're just going on doing it and and Tynan was when I reread him now I I think a that he was brilliant because he was absolutely superb at giving you that historic sense of a production yeah and of why it mattered I mean I read his review of John Osborne's Luther, which is, you know, a sort of play that people don't do much anymore because it, it it's a tricky play. But he really makes the case for it. And he absolutely makes the case for it by doing what I uh, I, I said that I, um, you know, think a theatre critic should do of bringing extra knowledge to it. So he's read biographies of Luther. He's got all this kind of background knowledge which he brings to the analysis. But he could be unbelievably cruel about actors and particularly women. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think um, I've always felt that his treatment of Vivian Lee, who, you know, he obviously loved Olivier so much and he just wanted to, I don't know, maybe he wanted Olivier to love him more than he loved Vivian Lee. And, you know, he's always saying absolutely brutal things about her. Like, yeah. Um, yeah, just horrible, horrible things. And always in contrast to sort of how great Olivier was. So, you know, Vivian Lee, you know, looks as if she's waiting for a bus where Olivier is great and all the rest of it. And I think that's really interesting. And But also I read just by chance, I was reading him about Dame Edith Evans, where he describes her as a plain middle-aged woman. And I think, <sighs> God, you know, oh, that's God. so terrible. And I I think, yeah, it, it it's really interesting because... You know, I th I think it was him who said, you have to have the chip of ice in your heart if you're going to be a good reviewer. Right. And I think at some levels that is true. But I think one of the things you weigh up very early as a critic is how harsh you're going to be on um, individuals. That I, I, I always feel I'm, I, I know that for myself, I'm, 
happier to be harsher on a play than I am on any individual performance, unless I suppose I feel that the whole production has been sold on that individual. Right. And then you have to judge what they bring to it. But I, I, that, I think that's where I, my chip of ice melts kind of quite quickly because I, I do imagine what it would be like if somebody said, especially if it's a personal thing, if it's like she looks ugly or he he's too fat for the part. I, I, I just think those things, there's a lot of chat at the moment in critical circles about how much kind of wokeness is affecting how we write right. about plays. Um, and I'm kind of on the side of the woke. I mean, I, I think personal, I think that there is a difference between personal attacks on people and actually analysing your experience as an audience yeah. member. And uh, it's a tricky balance and one that um, you do have to weigh up, you know, night after night. And there is a condition by the fact in in the past, when um, criticism was in its infancy, people were getting like 3,000 words to write. I used to read Bernard Levin obsessively, and I don't think he ever had less than 2,000 words. And now most reviews are because of um, the constraints of space and also because of um, the um, a lot of the rules about online. Certainly in the mainstream media, they will be you know, you're doing well if you've got 500 words. Oh, right. And quite often they're shorter than that. And yeah. it's very, very hard, even if you're the most nuanced person in the world, to present a sort of nuanced argument within that word constraint. So I think that there are things against a nuanced critical debate at the moment. Though interestingly, and again, this is something I think we'll discuss in a, a future podcast, th there's a whole new generation of online critics who are carving a space where the reviews are longer again and where the debate is much deeper, I think, at some yeah. levels. Um, and certainly they don't use stars and so on, which is another subject we might come on to. Yeah. Um, but... It, it, it's a tricky thing. And I, I mean, I raised, how, do you read the reviews? Partly because um, not so very long ago, you were in um, Mana, which I, which was one of the most sort of critically produced plays um, of recent times that it was at the National Theatre by Moira Buffini. And I think because it was there and because it was a new work I exposed on the Littleton stage, some of my colleagues were very, very tough on um, the production and, well, and specifically the play. Yeah. And um, I was tough on the play, which I thought we, we, you know, I think, you know, she'd set out to write a State of the Nation play and then hadn't quite done it really. It kind of felt um, a bit too much like, advertising that you know this was a big play and didn't and it had lots of big speeches and serious stuff in it and didn't really hang together so I felt tough on it on a play but I and indeed other people as well kind of said you didn't have the worst night in the world if you went to see it because the performances were good I thought and many of my colleagues said that as well but um, it did also attract a very rare no star review for, yeah. which was kind of I think I think some of us, those of us who have thought it was a kind of not very good play, well produced, were quite surprised by the the no star review. Yeah, um, 
And and then there was a kind of pylon happened because then, of course, it becomes a story. You've got this play at the National Theatre and, you know, everybody's looking at it. I mean, how did you... How did you cope with that? Because there was sort of such a deluge of bad publicity around it at that point. Well, it was a, it was a really interesting experience, actually. And I don't think, you know, I can only speak from my experience of, you know, we started rehearsing it before the lockdown in March 20. And then, of course, the world changed completely between then and picking it up again um, in the autumn of last year. And then performing it and opening it with COVID still very present. Um, and so all of those things had worried Moira and had driven her to write the play, although they were still very present, had slightly been pushed into a different realm. You're like, well, OK, let's not worry about climate change and plastic recycling at this moment because we're still needing masks and tests and all the rest of it let's worry about that further down the line when we've got on top of the pandemic and then we go can go back to worrying about um institutionalized racism and climate change and uh, the health service being squashed by the current current government and all the things that Mora feels so strongly about and is so politicized about um we all knew as a company what what she was trying to do and passionately trying to open conversations about and you know and there were there were signs early on during previews that people were going to react to certain elements of that play quite strongly and so we had a conversation um on stage together as a company with Moira and her sister Fiona Buffini who directed it about the more inflammatory content and were we prepared to stick our neck out as a company and nail our what's-its to the post and say, this needs to be talked about? And it was really interesting. Uh, and we knew it would be inflammatory and we knew it would divide people. And we sort of had a sense that it was a mumite play in that way. That I think it was quite shocking. That zero-star review was such a statement. I've never mm. known anything like it. Manor's greatest misfortune was to a week after Rare Earth Metal at the Royal Court, which was another new play about climate change, which was also badly received. Right. And so I, I do think that everybody even more started to ride on it. You know, you wanted one of these two pieces to work. And if they both didn't work, you know, what does that say about theatre's capacity to deal with big themes? And so I think a lot of pressure fell on that um, production, which I think is part, partly accounts for the, the zero stars. Well, somebody else said it was one of the worst new plays they'd ever seen. <laughs> well, I personally had seen a play I disliked even more the previous week. So, I mean, I just thought, you know, and, and so it, it, you do bring so much of yourself to the room as a critic. But, uh, but it's interesting, though, I think that you have to be very clear about what you think theatre is when you when you come to a crossroads like that. I would say from my part, and it's difficult because as a performer, the minute you react to a review, you're, you can only really be seen as being defensive. But I would say, for my part, any reaction, whether it's negative or, or positive, and even when it's as extreme as that, is a positive reaction. We're all alive. We're all in the most extraordinary, terrifying 
we're living through terrifying times. And the intentions, Moira's intentions, were very, very clear. She wanted to start conversations that she felt weren't happening enough with enough commitment by the right sort of people. And I think she did that. And I was excited to be part of that. And that zero star review for whatever you think about who he is and what he represents and what he was trying to do. And that's another conversation. What are you actually trying to do? Are you trying to keep theatre alive? Or, you know, that's a whole other thing. Another pod. Another pod. Yeah. Tune in. Um, But, you know, I think I was excited by the extremity of the reaction. I didn't take it personally. I loved doing that play. I loved it. I think Moira is a brilliant writer. I felt completely privileged to be on that stage. I loved being in that theatre in any capacity, not just the Littleton, in any one of those stages. And I and I love the attempt to open up conversations. And maybe it was just too many conversations to open up at once, but it was, you know, I think representative of a great history of theatre as a political forum. It was clear that the intention of that play was to raise issues that were not being discussed yeah. and and really attempt to make a state of the nation play. As with my critic hat on, what I would say is that there were too many, um, you know, that, that, that I kind of long for somebody to say you can't actually deal with all these things. And what, in fact, I think undid the play, in my opinion, um, though not to uh, the, the, the level of no stars, was that... Um, there were just too many big speeches on too many disparate themes and and it kind of is energy dissipated just because she was trying to do too much almost but I I, I also you know her intentions were clearly good and you could see that and the other thing with my critic add-on was that it seemed to me the audience didn't have as bad a time as the critics and that was interesting yeah yeah so critics it's really interesting people the one question people always ask if they're at all interested in theatre criticism, which is, you know, obviously not that many. Uh. But the one question people ask is, do you do you all talk about the play in the interval? Because quite often the critics will um, have drinks together in the interval or a sandwich or whatever. And it really is true in my experience that people are fantastically honourable about not talking about the play. So you talk about everything else, you know, your children the fact that your car broke down on the way to the theatre, all those kind of things. But you don't talk about your view of the play. Yeah. And you always talk in that kind of slightly uh, cocktail party chat level. So you're not really revealing what you're actually feeling. And I am therefore always baffled as a critic about how a consensus does arise. Right. And it's particularly interesting if you're sitting in an audience that is having quite a good time, which I, I mean, I did feel that was true uh, with Manor. And it's been true of other plays that I, I personally dislike more. I mean, I I have been in audiences where I felt like I am the only person who really hates this play. Um, so it that, that whole business of how how weight builds around things being a hit or a miss is fascinating to me and it was also fascinating how um how much you do or you do not you know represent the audience consensus but did you feel I mean did you feel with audiences that because it must have been very odd with manner did it did it kind of lose an audience did it did people just vanish I think so well I think it was a real sense and I I mean it's hard to know whether this is us projecting onto audiences 
post the reality of the consensus that the play hadn't worked, despite the fact that we still had to do it every night, um, that there was a sense of you, we would spend the first 20 minutes trying to, have, trying to win them over. There was a real cloud that hung over that, that first few audiences that the week of the, of the press night and of the reviews being released. But I, and I, and I think that we possibly brought it back a bit, that there was a real uh, direction that came from both Moira and Fiona Buffini, the director and writer of the play, that it had, you know, it had to crash into people's lives and that the storm of the political deluge of problems and things that required immediate attention was actually a storm and that that was being set in a storm and, you know, that all of the energy of that storm had to literally whack an audience around the face. And that was their direction. And it seemed very clear to us that the noise of that was absolutely right. Then following, I think, the the reviews and knowing that audiences were coming, possibly clutching resentfully the tickets in their hands, that we had to slightly sit back on it and find a sort of halfway point. And perhaps we sort of grew again into working out slightly tenaciously how to perform it in a way that everybody was happy with. What then happened subsequently was that a younger audience came, perhaps because the National had to reduce their ticket prices, <laughs> I don't know. But um, but it was completely jaw-dropping how different that audience was and how how much they lapped it up. I don't. We talked about it a lot. I don't know whether it's because a younger generation who are growing up with social media uh, are able to operate on a sort of multifaceted information grabbing level that they can they can have three or four discussions going on in their head at the same time because they're used to operating on three or four devices at the same time or you know whatever it is. But we had a couple of weeks where we had a fairly full house of much younger of a much younger demographic who were vocal in their reaction it was so exciting it was it was like a rock and roll concert it was just really great it was like all bets were off and they were willing to hear those arguments and willing to have the sound bite quality of the information that because moira was um wanting to open up so many different discussions within that time often you were only getting a fleeting glimpse at one of those problems that she was referring to. So a younger audience could go, oh, God, I didn't know about that. Oh, yes, I do want to have a conversation about that. Oh, and on to the next thing. And and so it wasn't a problem for them. Whereas perhaps for a more informed intellectual audience, they go, hang on, hang on, hang on. There's just too many things happening here. Be clear. You know, get you can be on maybe two, three fences, but not six. You know, let's, um, let's have one discussion properly whereas a younger audience were like yeah 25 discussions great <laughs> and 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 as a result they were quite revved up you know and so when uh, you, you know the the brilliant michelle austin who was playing ripley made that discussion about the nhs she was cheered yeah and when sean evans you know was clearly revealed as the sort of baddie at the end and the real fascist that he was he was booed 
And and for us, we were like, yes, you know, that was that was really that, exciting. That's really fascinating because it it calls into, I mean, it calls into question as well. You know that that whole idea about the well made play. You know, which I think, um, I think that does still um, uh, condition critical. Uh, yeah. views you know that th- we're you know because we're all seeped in the history of theatre because we've all got that kind of um, expectation I suppose of what we're going to see that you do expect certain things and if you don't have that expectation yeah then that that is kind of amazing really I, I remember taking um, one of my sons um, when he was I, I, about 14 to see um, a Sarah Kane play maybe he was a bit older Though I, I do have a famously bad um, mothering strategy about <laughs> theatrical. Um, I don't know. So maybe he was 40. Anyhow, but he didn't know what to expect. You know, he didn't know anything about Sarah Kane at all. Yeah. He didn't know that, you know, she was a shock and all playwright. He didn't know any of her history. And he just went, wow, this is amazing. Yeah. And I think that that is quite interesting, that kind of visceral reaction to things. That is what critics are, are not good at, partly because he's not... In a sense, it's not what we're paid for. We are paid to analyse. That's what we're meant to do, you know. Yeah. But it, it's really interesting. And also it does pull us back to that idea of why we, we've started this podcast, why why we, we, we want to try and have those conversations. That It does um, express the idea that theatre is this live, living place where actually increasingly, I feel, um, debates happen that don't happen anywhere else yeah yeah or, or and you know as a, in a sense you know tv gets more timid news gets more um controlled controlled but also fragmented yeah theater is still a place where you all go into a room you sit down you watch the same thing at the same time and you talk about it you inevitably talk about it i mean you know no, nobody ever comes out of the theater without an opinion yeah so i think that's that's great and i think that is part of what um this podcast might be part of yes and that's what we hope but isn't it it's a really exciting um thing to discuss because you know as you say that we both come at it from a place of passion and that you know, we're very we're very good at forgetting um, the amount of work and effort and toil and literally uh, blood, sweat, and tears that goes into putting on um, a dance show or you know a, a music concert or a theatre piece. But equally, you know, when actors react very strongly to reviews, we forget about the experience and time and intellect and knowledge that 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 critic has you know, um, gathered through their years of experience that have taken them to that place and they've been given a job by a paper or a website to write a review. And that shouldn't be dismissed either. And I think, you know, what what sometimes is lacking, I think, in certain situations is a mutual respect and an understanding of that work 